Thousands of years ago, woolly mammoths went extinct, never to walk on this planet again. But if a new company gets its way... A woolly mammoth could roam the Earth by 2027. Geoscientist George Church and his company Colossal trying to revive the extinct creature. So what exactly does Colossal, this new company, want to put in the Arctic tundra? Why are they doing it? And should they even try to recreate something that's been dead for thousands of years? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. To answer these questions, we went straight to the source. I'm Ben Lamb. I'm the founder and CEO of Colossal. We're a biosciences company that's focused initially on bringing back the woolly mammoth through de-extinction. Colossal's name popped up in the media back in September when they announced they'd raised $15 million to make a woolly mammoth calf. But the idea of bringing back the woolly mammoth has been the subject of some media hype for a while. From the public's perspective, we've only been around for about three months, but from George's perspective, it's a decade-long endeavor that he's been working on. George would be George Church. He leads a synthetic biology lab at Harvard Medical School. And he's also Ben's co-founder at Colossal. So I, I, I think of George as one of the most prolific scientists of our day. I think he's a national treasure. He's probably one of the fathers of synthetic biology and one of the true pioneers of delivering on the promise that genomics hopefully has in our lifetime. So our listeners can't see this, but when you talk about this, your face is beaming, glowing. You, you look really excited. What about this excites you? It is, it is exciting. I mean, I get every day I get to wake up and, and work on this. And so it's just a joy every single day. And then to be able to do something that could be so revolutionary for humankind, as well as help with conservation and hopefully long-term, you know, help play our part in rewilding and climate change. It's the perfect Venn diagram for me. So like, it's hard not to be smiling about it. I mean, we're talking about de-extinction. So what exactly is de-extinction, this thing we're talking about? Basically, it means resurrecting an extinct species. In the case of the woolly mammoth, it's about taking the DNA of an Asian elephant, genetically pretty similar to the old mammoths, and modifying it. This isn't the pure breeding world of mammoths. This is the mud world of mammoths that we're working in. Let's break down how that works. They'll use an Asian elephant cell for what Ben calls the reference architecture. From a phylogenic perspective in the elephant tree of life, if you will, they're, they're very closely related species. And so we're, what we're doing is we're de-extincting genes to create what we're calling functional mammoths or arctic elephants. So that means taking tissue samples from woolly mammoth bones and sequencing them to find genetic differences with Asian elephants. And then George and his team have actually identified about 60 genes that, that represent the cold tolerance. That includes some traits you typically associate with a woolly mammoth, like the wool or the small ears. And then they go to work modifying those Asian elephant genes so that the final product will have those traits. So now we're in the process of making those edits. So, so taking those genes using CRISPR and a few other technologies. CRISPR is a gene editing tool that allows scientists to modify DNA. Ben says that then they'll do some testing check things out from a molecular perspective, and make sure that the biomarkers they want are showing up in the cell like they should. 
And then... We actually then take the nucleus of that edited cell, put it into the nucleus of an embryo, and then you either implant that into a surrogate or you use an artificial womb. If all goes well, presumably there will be a new baby woolly mammoth. There's quite a bit of skepticism over whether Colossal can actually do all of that. And we'll get to that in a bit. But first, we have to address one of the many elephants in the room. So, I'm sure you have heard every possible comparison to Jurassic Park, especially the infamous line, Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. You are operating from the perspective that there are good reasons to bring back the woolly mammoth, at least in a hybrid form. What are those reasons? <laughs> We've had different feedback and some positive, some negative on the conservation angles. You know, for us, elephants have a strong possibility of going extinct in our lifetime. There's a few reasons for that. But a major one is human-elephant conflict. Humans are encroaching on the land that once was elephant habitats. So if we have the ability to save the elephant lineage by combining it with genes from its historical ancestor and return it to its ancestral domain, being the Arctic, well then we're creating an entire new population of elephants in an area that can't currently survive, which is amazing. Ben says they could potentially use the science they develop throughout the process on other animals, like the also endangered northern white rhino. I think that modern conservation is incredible and we need to continue to do it. But I think that some of the techniques that we're developing can be very exciting for kind of new tools in the conservation tool belt. So in the long-term reasons, actually around Arctic rewilding. If you look at Colossal's website, it's pretty focused on this reason. The top five out of their 10 core goals in recreating the mammoth have to do with rewilding. Generally, rewilding is about restoring ecosystems to their natural state. Colossal takes that to mean bringing their elephants to the Arctic tundra. They're basically asserting that the elephants can help revert that ecosystem from the mossy area that it is now into the grassland that it was when the original mammoth was alive. And the hope behind that is that those grasslands will keep the permafrost from melting and help slow climate change. So how can we actually help to geoengineer and return the Arctic back to its previous landscape of more Arctic grassland than trees? And that's going to take a long time, like just to be clear, that, that's going to take decades upon decades. But if we don't start now, then, you know, we'll never get to it. So you, you've always got to start somewhere. Some of the headlines that have come out around this project, so many of them, and among the criticisms that you mentioned yourself, is that this is about climate change. This is about stopping the effects of climate change in a way that may not be as feasible. Can you talk about what climate change has to do with this hybrid animal? There is no single silver bullet for solving climate change. The only way to really do that is change hearts and minds and human behavior across the globe. And, and I think that we can play a part in that and we can bring awareness to conservation and climate change. From an actual rewilding perspective, Colossal is not going to solve climate change, but we have the opportunity to place elephants back into their ancestral domain, leverage them for being an environmental modifier and actually knocking down trees, uprooting uh, shrubs, herding and, and doing migrations, actually packing the snow. And that's something that is desperately needed in the Arctic. 
It's important to note that Ben and George aren't the only people trying to turn the Arctic tundra back into what it once was. A Russian father-son duo have already created a nature reserve called Pleistocene Park, which is trying to convert part of Siberia into a grassland. And they've been doing a lot of rewilding studies showing that if we could remove kind of these carnivorous trees from the Arctic and help the Arctic grasslands uh, once again blossom like it did five, 10,000 years ago through using natural means, using animals, so bison, horses, different types of oxen and, 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 and even mammoths, well then we can actually help reshape that environment. And that's not going to happen overnight, right? right? Like tomorrow, we're not going to have 5,000 mammoths in the <laughs> Arctic. Like it, ta- it, it takes a while. And, but just because things take a while doesn't mean you, you shouldn't work on them. So Ben, let's imagine we are in Rewilding 101. Once you have these little woolly mammoth-esque <laughs> calves emerge from their artificial wombs, what happens next? Once we have our first calves born, and those will be integrated with existing surrogates, with existing herds, and then from that, we'll start to reintroduce those into the wild in in small little pockets. When you mentioned the existing herds, would those be Asian elephant herds? Yeah. Over time, once we get to the right level of herd population dynamics, elephant herds are anywhere from eight to about 100. We'll then start to build pockets of herds. And so over time, you know, we'll probably wean them off being integrated with Asian elephants uh, themselves and being in their own kind of interbreedable herds. I'm sure you've discussed unintended consequences. What could some of these consequences look like? The good news about elephants is they're very large. It's not like we're (laughs) modifying an ant or a mosquito or a mouse and then we're going to put it in a field and see what happens. Like that can get out of hand very quickly. And so we want to be very, very thoughtful about this so that we can at least mitigate any of the unintended consequences. But in the event that there are unintended consequences, at least we're dealing with something that is rollbackable versus something that once it's in the wild is hard to track. So just so we're all on the same page, what would rollbackable mean? I mean, they, they exist, so you have to call them or... No, I don't. I mean, elephants are actually cold in several parts of the world, which is terrible. But no, I think you'd, you would have to isolate them into a geographic location that has barriers and whatnot. Now, the good news is areas like Pleistocene Park, there's a lot of land up there that if you needed to do segments, you could. I don't think that anybody wants to be in the culling uh, of the mammoths. So Ben's already hinted at it. But if you hadn't already guessed, there has been some skepticism around Colossal's project. There are questions around ethics, the science, the finances, all kinds of things. So we reached out to a couple of scientists outside of Colossal to get their take. I'm Joseph Bennett at Carleton University. I study conservation biology, so specifically my research looks at how we can save more species from extinction. Professor Bennett has had a mixed reaction to the prospect of bringing back the woolly mammoth. So on one hand, I'm fascinated by the science of cloning and the genetics behind things, though I'm not an expert in that aspect. On the other hand, I'm a little disappointed that some of this is being spun as a solution to conservation and climate change problems, for which we really know the solutions. Professor Bennett's interested in how conservationists can prioritize their limited budgets. 
and he has done some research on what $15 million, the initial amount Colossal raised, could do. For that amount of money, you can literally save hundreds of species from extinction. Because right now, there are loads of not-genetically modified animals that are endangered, but still alive today. But soon, they could go the way of the original woolly mammoth. So right now, we are losing somewhere between 200 and 2,000 species per year. So what that means is it's highly likely that before you and I go to sleep at night, we will have lost one or maybe 10 species today. In the history of Earth, there have been mass extinctions, such as when the dinosaurs went extinct. This is one of them. And so this being sold as conservation strikes me as being disingenuous. So this is criticism that Ben's heard before, that the money could be better used elsewhere. And he has a response to that. We're not taking money that would go to nonprofits. You know, we're working with large family offices and venture capitalists that would make investments in technology and other types of companies, right? We just also have the benefit of creating technologies that can help conservation. I think if anything, we're actually bringing more awareness and more money to to conservation. But Professor Bennett isn't quite satisfied with that. I think that the argument that the resources are coming in that would maybe be spent elsewhere is fine, but then don't sell it as conservation because it isn't really conservation. He also has some other concerns about what will happen should the project go forward. I've spent a fair bit of time in both the Arctic tundra and the Southeast Asian jungle, and those environments could not be much different. So the thought of a surrogate elephant somehow being able to birth and and raise a mammoth as a mammoth is really, really tricky. The odds are whatever hybrid mammoth elephant came out, it would be very difficult for it to establish and learn how to be what that species once was. So I think there are serious ethical implications. And Dr. Bennett's not the only scientist worried about those implications. I think the science is very interesting and very exciting, certainly from a theoretical perspective. I just don't buy it from a practical perspective. That's Dr. Tori Herridge. She's an evolutionary biologist at the Natural History Museum in London. And she's pretty skeptical that the colossal team will be able to create the mammoth, especially in the time frame they've outlined. According to Dr. Herridge, there are a lot of questions left about the science. Using an elephant surrogate comes with a whole host of ethical issues. She says there's still quite a bit of research that needs to go into making an artificial womb that can carry an elephant throughout the entire 18- to 22-month gestation period. On top of that is another question. How effective could these elephants be for Colossal's climate change agenda? A big elephant will always change its local environment, but what degree of change it will have is definitely up for grabs. And the evidence does not come very heavily down. It doesn't say definitively that is so. So if that's the case, then what are you doing? You're just placing a newly invented animal, a synthetic species, but one which would be still, I'm sure, intelligent and social (laughs) into an environment where they probably won't do very much and maybe they won't be very happy. Because if you're using 
the woolly mammoth genome to decide what features to put onto your mammoth. These are features that were kind of adapted to exist in an ice age world, which disappeared as the world warmed 15,000 years ago. If we're placing an animal that isn't suited to the current environment, particularly when that current environment is warming, (laughs) then you're just setting out to create a miserable bunch of mammoths. It's really sad. (laughs) But like Professor Bennett, she is excited about the scientific potential that could come out of trying to make this new elephant. I think the pursuit of that will yield a net benefit to human knowledge. It really will. And I'm sure it will also yield a net benefit to Colossal in terms of its intellectual property and its technological prowess as a company. So from an investment point of view, yeah, if you don't actually focus entirely on the mammoth bit, then I think it's a pretty interesting company. But I just don't, I just don't think they're going to do it. So about that financial point of view she mentioned, Colossal's brought on some pretty high-profile investors. That includes private equity companies, but also people like the Winklevoss twins, who will be familiar to anyone who's watched the movie The Social Network, and Thomas Tull, the billionaire film producer who revived the Jurassic Park movies. Thomas has done a lot of stuff outside of Jurassic Park, and he's actually more interested in the science as a lot of investors might be. Ben says they looked for investors who were in it for the long term, so the company could focus on the technology first. And quite a bit of tech could come out of this process, from artificial wombs to software to new gene editing tools. And I think each one of those could be very large monetizable moments for our investors. If you look at our executive team, we've all built multiple companies. We know how to monetize. That'll come later. That's just not our focus right now. In September, Cameron Winklevoss told the news outlet Fortune that, quote, there could be a lot of economic opportunity over time, which might include television or even parks for extinct animals like Jurassic Park, which, of course, is going to keep coming up. Is this something you're actually considering? We're never going to shake the Jurassic Park angle of it, right? Like, Does that bug you? It only bugs me if people are not informed. I think that science fiction has a role to play in all of our lives. But, you know, I think we'll never fully shake it. And and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, you know, because we're not going out to create Jurassic Park. We're going out to build Arctic elephants and and save endangered species. So I think that as long as we stay true to that, we will. To your point about Cameron uh, on the media side, we want to be very transparent. And I think that one of the best ways that we can be transparent is bring people in. What we didn't do is we didn't just fund this stuff, set up our labs, and then we didn't have like a big reveal, like a Super Bowl where we like pulled off the curtain. It's like, look at, look at us. We got a mammoth, right? Like we didn't do that. We, we want to be radically transparent. We want to engage governments, nonprofits, the general public. And part of how I think we can do that is, you know, we're in talks with several different big media players that want to come in and help tell the story to the world, have cameras in the lab, show people the process along the way. And I think that's critically important that transparency. Transparency is pretty important to Dr. Harridge, too. But her take on what that means is a bit different from Ben's. Once you accept that this is actually a synthetic organism, a genetically modified organism that's being created to supposedly change the environment of a very large portion of the world, because that's what you'd need 
have a climate impact, then it changes the conversation that we need to have around de-extinction or rewilding. Because this is not about fixing something. There's no re here. There's no rewilding. It's a new organism. There is no de-extinction. So what you are doing is you are modifying biology to modify the world. And when you accept that and phrase it like that, then the questions become about what change do we actually want to see and who gets to say whether that should happen. I don't think that a small coterie of wealthy investors should get to decide the fate of an ecosystem at all. They have an obligation to spend some of that money on properly asking whether or not this is something that the world wants to see happen. So finally, Ben, there is a line on Colossal's website that I want to bring up, and it reads, quote, We are leading the new charge of bioscience. We accept the responsibility and we can see the light at the end of it. Can you talk about the responsibility that you're taking on here? Is it to the animals, to the larger environment where they'll be living? I think it's much deeper than the animals, right? We're ushering in the ability for humankind to truly modify and support our environment in ways that benefit all humankind. We have a a lot of weight on our shoulders, but I, I do believe that we have the right team to deliver on it, not just on the technological innovations and the Arctic elephants, but on ensuring that we hold ourselves to the standard that we've set out to go for. But before we go, I want to bring back Dr. Harridge, who has one last question, one for all of us. The big question is really, why does it appeal to people so much? Every single person listening should really ask themselves, why is this so much more fascinating than just a standard, let's say, the Asian Elephants Project? Why does it move people in a certain way? Because that's the interesting question, right? Regardless of whether the science is sound or not, it doesn't go away. If people are genuinely honest with themselves, it's just because it's cool. It's like the wow sci-fi factor. Because actually what they want to do is something really groundbreaking. They want to be the people who said, we did this amazing thing. Yes, that's who brisket, but that's human nature. And you shouldn't be ashamed of that, really. It's certainly one of the motivating forces for me in my research is just like just wanting to find out something new. And it's a really fundamental part of being human and we shouldn't be ashamed of it. But I think we should be honest about it. And that's The Take. If this conversation left you wanting a little bit more, we've got a previous episode you should check out. It will leave you with no doubt on how intelligent elephants are, but also warns of increasing elephant-human conflict. We'll post a link on our social pages. We're at AJ the Take on Instagram and Twitter. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai, with Ruby Zaman, Amy Walters, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilvey, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Tom Fenton is our story editor. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back. <laughs>